Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Which of these forks do I use for the uh, soup? Uh, the one on the left. And pinkies up. That's proper. Also, you don't use a fork for soup. <laughs> I'm an idiot. The chunky soup is the soup you eat like a meal. They would not serve chunky soup. Can you imagine the queen being like, oh, I'll have some chunky soup. She might like chunky soup. I bet, she, I I bet she devours a mean hoagie. Indeed. Can you imagine? You know, sometimes rich people like to eat poor people. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she ever eats one of those Hungry Man TV dinners? Can you imagine? Just, you know, she's in a hurry. <laughs> And uh, she needs to eat, like, now, so she's only got 15 minutes. And so she goes into the freezer and pulls out a Swanson's Hungry Man dinner. <laughs> throws that in the microwave. It seems queenly of her. Uh, peels off the plastic wrap. Eats her Salisbury steak. And her uh, cherry crumble. <laughs> you know, just really appreciate it. Wow. Because, wow. because it saves her some time. Her Royal Highness, I tell you, what a classy babe. I mean, no, I mean what I said. I said what I mean. This is a very long intro. This is the longest intro we've ever done. Almost live from Buckingham Palace. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. We are your blue-blooded hosts. If you cut us, we will bleed. Our blood is red. It's not actually. Well, it's blue and it's in our veins. It's true. Until it hits oxygen. And then it becomes red. I've heard that that is actually a myth. What do you mean? That that is not entirely true. Is it just that our veins are blue? I don't know. I... I... I've heard both of those you things. Know, we should really and I, I'm not a doctor. We so should I consult don't. a physician. That, obviously, yes. I wish my blood was green. So that you would be a Vulcan? Yes. Or a Romulan? Mm, Romulan. Mm, yeah. They're just more exciting and sinister. It's true. Anyway, we should talk about our show. Yes, and our very exciting guest. It's true. We have Mayor Stephen Mandel joining us today. It's true. We uh, we did promise you a special show. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, what would be more special than giving Mayor Mandel an exit interview prior to his leaving office yeah. this October, being replaced with, who knows, someone else. We don't know. We, what, what we if, are not uh, psychics. No. One of any number of declared candidates. Though. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or possibly a write-in. I, I intend to write in Fidel Castro. Well, you know, it's about time he started looking after the citizens of Edmonton. It's true. So, so there's that. Over the past few months, I've been one of the co-bosses of Edmonton Nerd Nights. Now, if you've never been to a Nerd Night before, it's an event that takes place in a bar where you get a bunch of speakers together to talk about their research or the thing that they're super nerdy about and people drink beer while they present. My partner Wade Kelly and I wanted to bring this to Edmonton because we felt that there was an opportunity to fill a niche that involved learning about nerdy stuff while drinking beer. And over the last few nerd nights, we haven't really had the opportunity to record our speakers, but at our last nerd night of the season, which took place on May 23rd at the Haven Social Club, we recorded a few sessions. And so I wanted to share with our unknown studio listeners what they could expect at Edmonton Nerd Night. So what you're going to hear, and, and remember that these presentations often are accompanied by visuals. So if you miss a few of the minor details, uh, it's it's... Just unfortunately something you're going to have to deal with. But in any case, I'm going to uh, treat you to the presentation given by Kaylee Byers, who is a master's in science student at the University of Alberta. She was studying the reproductive morphologies of feather mites. So she gave a talk uh, called The Walking Nearly Dead, 
which is with the subtitle Parasite Manipulation of Host Behavior. This isn't uh, Kaylee's area of research, but she was really interested in it, wanted to talk about it. So here is Kaylee Byers' uh, Nerd Night talk at the Haven Social Club. Okay, well, my actual favorite movie is Jurassic Park, so that one's a little off, but otherwise, most of that was correct. Um, so I'm Kaylee, and I'm really excited because tonight I get to talk to you about my absolute favorite organisms, which are parasites, and some of the crazy things they do to finish their life cycles and move on to their next hosts. But I actually don't study parasites in my master's. I actually look at feather mites. Um, not in your pillows, but on birds and on feathers. Um, they're actually not parasites at all, uh, though they can cause damage if they're in really high numbers. Um, they eat the oil on the feathers of the bird. This is my plug for mites. They're not going to come back. There are some parasitic mites, not these guys. But look how beautiful they are. Aren't they beautiful? Um, on the left, that's the lady. She has something that kind of looks like male genitalia. And and uh, the male is on the right. Little messed up. Oh. <laughs> so what are parasites? Parasites are incredibly diverse. And it's actually one of the most common forms of life that's out there. Um, they can live in the intestines, like tapeworms or uh, giardia, which is also called beaver fever. It makes you a little sick. Um, they can leave, live in the blood, malaria, um, African sleeping sickness. They can also be the creepy crawlies that crawl on your skin. So ticks, which are just big mites, by the way. Um, fleas, lice. Up here in the corner, we have a parasitic isopod, so a little crustacean. It actually crawls underneath the gills of the fish, goes into the mouth, destroys the tongue, and then becomes the tongue and eats the incoming food. So all of these have in common, <laughs> it crawls into the gills, destroys the tongue, becomes the tongue, and eats the incoming food. Mmm, delicious. Uh, no, the fish continues to live. It continues to live. So these guys all derive benefit from their host, and they all cause harm to the host in some way. And we're going to be talking about parasites and parasitoids, and they're quite different. So parasites cause harm, the host doesn't benefit, but ultimately parasites don't kill their host. They want them to live so that they can continue to live themselves. Um, parasitoids, on the other hand, are jerks. They kill their host, and uh, often because they're killing their host, they also then disrupt the host's ability to reproduce. So not only are you killing that animal, you're also stopping it from having babies, which is really its life goal. Um, so up here on the left, you see a beetle, and that is a worm coming out of its bum. Uh, it's going to die. And on the right, that's a caterpillar, and it's surrounded by little wasp larvae, also going to die. Um, we're going to be talking about parasitic or parasitoid wasps because they make up the most um, diverse group of parasitoids. So then what are hosts? They're everything, really. Anything that a parasite can live on or in, that's them. You can be a cute little jumping spider in the corner. You can be reptiles, birds. You can be me. I'm dressed like a parasitized ant there, by the way. I've got some fungus coming out of my head. Um, even among biologists, they didn't know what I was. <laughs> and uh, down here in the corner, you can also be a plant. So plants are not immune to parasites either. And even though they look incredibly simplistic, they're actually really complex. And I would actually argue that they're some of the most complex organisms out there. Most parasites have more than one host. And in order to move between hosts, they have to change their body shape, biochemistry, almost completely. So um, to give you sort of an example, I'm going to talk about two sorts of hosts here. So definitive hosts, which is essentially the host that the parasite needs to reproduce and have its own babies and move on. And then there's intermediate hosts, which kind of act like buses, getting them from definitive host to definitive host. So here we have a, a digenean trematode, so it's sort of like a little worm, and it infects cows. And it lays eggs in the cow's intestine, and then the cow poops them out. Um, and then a little snail comes along, and they love eating poop, which you're going to learn as we go through this talk. They love poop. So they eat it, and they get infected. Now, in the snail, the parasite undergoes a complete change in its body form, and the snail doesn't want it there anymore, so it tries to push it out through its immune system, and they come out in the slime. So there's intermediate host number one. An ant then comes along and is like, man, I love slime. So it eats up that slime, it becomes infected. 
Now, how is that parasite going to get from the ant to the cow? Cows don't live on eating ants. They eat grass. And in the evening, these ants tend to go below ground. Well, what the parasite does is it manipulates the nerve system of the ant and causes the ant to grow up on a blade of grass at nighttime instead of back underground and clasp there with its mouse parts, hoping that a cow will come along and consume it. How terrifying is that? So you go from definitive host through two intermediate hosts back the, to the definitive host. So then parasite manipulation or manipulation of the host is really any alteration in host behavior or host appearance. We're going to talk a couple instances about host appearance changes and then a couple about behavioral changes. Um, this one's a really cool one. This is a change in morphology. So here we have a land snail. And this little land snail likes to feed on poop. Yeah, poop. So <laughs> close. Uh, so it feeds on bird poop. And it goes along and it's feeding on this bird poop. And there is a, another worm-like critter. This is a trematode, and it infects birds. And the eggs come out in the feces of the bird, and the little snail goes, num, 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 and it eats them up. Now, for this snail, the parasites go to the eye stalks, so those two little flangey bits there at the top, and it parasitizes there. Now, birds alone don't usually eat these snails. Not really, they're, you know, they're not really big on escargot, they don't go that way, but they do love snails. So what these parasites do is they make the eye stalks look like snails. And not only do they make them look like snails, they make them act like snails. they make them look like caterpillars. So you'll see the sort of undulation there. And it's doing that so that it looks like these cute little caterpillars in the soil. And the bird goes, yum, flies in, bites off the eye stalks, and gets infected. Now, another consequence of infecting the eye stalks is that the, cat or the snail can no longer determine light from dark as well. So normally, that snail would go into nice dark places where birds will not be. But now it's like whatever and hangs out in the light, and it's much more easily picked off by a bird. Um, this next one is actually probably one of my favorite cases of um, changes in host morphology or their appearance. So here we have a cute little ant. Um, this is sort of down in Central America. And cephalodes. And this ant um, has a unique life cycle that the parasite involves with the bird, another bird. So here we have a nematode, also a little worm-like thing, different than the other ones we talked about, but just imagine little worms. And they lay eggs in the bird. Eggs come out in the poop. Then little war or soldier worker ants, worker ants come along, and they grab that poop, poop and they bring it back to their young in the colony, and they're like, mmm, delicious, and the larvae eat it up, and the larvae become infected. So up in the top left, you'll see an uninfected ant. And you'll notice, you know, all black. Um, the abdomen, or the bum end, completely black in the uninfected ant. In the infected ant, that abdomen becomes strangely red. Now, what's also strange about that red color is that it looks a lot like berries that are in that area. Now, this bird that has the nematode loves to eat berries. It thinks they're the best. So it flies in and eats berries all the time. So now you have this ant bum that looks a lot like a berry. The color change is due to the accumulation of parasites in the abdomen. So once the eggs go into the ant, they hatch, you get a male and female, they reproduce inside of the ant, the male dies, she starts laying a whole bunch of eggs, they start developing, and it's that color of the developing nematodes that shows through the exoskeleton of the ant. So not only does it change its color, it does two other really crazy things. The first is that it changes the way the ant holds its abdomen. So normally, the ant abdomen, you'll notice in the top, is sort of closer to the ground. What it does instead is it causes the ant abdomen to raise. So they think that this happens because the accumulation of parasites in the abdomen puts pressure on the ventral nerve cord, which does damage and makes the gaster go up. It's called gaster flagging. Well, what this does is it makes it a lot easier for birds to see that abdomen. Not only that, it weakens the junction between the abdomen and the rest of the ant. So not only do you look like a berry, you're easier to see and grab, but you also just break off like nothing in the bill of the bird, and away it flies with the infection. Pretty crazy. Uh, the ant would not live, no. I doubt. <laughs> Um, so there's a color profile showing the similarity in color between uh, the berry, so the red fruit in pink,
pink, and then the infected ant in red, and the normal ant in black. And you'll notice that the color profile of the red fruit and the infected ant aren't exactly the same, but they are very, very similar. Evolution. What? Okay. Behavior time. These are really exciting. So we're going to talk about parasitoid wasps because they do the craziest stuff. And here we have a parasitoid wasp called Glyptopantelles. And Glyptopantelles lays its eggs inside of a little caterpillar. And it can lay up to 80 eggs about in that caterpillar. Now, the eggs go inside the caterpillar and the mom flies away. And those little eggs hatch and they become larvae, but then they need to pupate. So if you think of like a butterfly and then building their own little cocoon, these wasps need to do the same. You can imagine that they probably can't do that inside of the caterpillar. What are you going to do? You're going to burrow through the caterpillar, all 80 of you, out. And you're going to pupate onto a nice sturdy stick. Now, the caterpillar's not dead. <laughs> I would want to be dead. It's not. It's still living. Um, not only do the parasites come out of the body, they also make the caterpillar its slave. So essentially, these little um, pupae are actually really highly at risk of other insects coming along and damaging them. So I'm just going to show you this behavior here first. It's called bodyguarding. Same premise, same premise. Okay, getting it out of there. No more of that, see you later. So that's exactly what it does. It flips out, gets the insect out of there, and allows the pupae to survive. Um, the caterpillar will die, but it's from not feeding because why would we let it go eat? It's our bodyguard. I'm including this next one of a parasitoid wasp for a couple reasons. Um, first, because it's disgusting and amazing. Uh, the second is that I have this feeling that a lot of people don't really like spiders. Um, so I thought maybe it would be like, yes, finally, they're getting theirs, you know? But um, I think that you wouldn't wish this on spiders even if you don't like them. So here we have this parasitoid wasp, and it's from Costa Rica. And it flies up to an orb-weaving spider, which is, is the host, and it paralyzes it briefly and lays an egg on the abdomen. Now you're probably thinking, whatever, I just saw something lay 80 eggs inside of a caterpillar and fly away, this is nothing. Um, not quite, because that egg hatches and that larvae chews a hole through the side of the spider and starts feeding. Um, slowly feeding on the juices of the spider and the spider's like, whatever, and keeps living for a couple weeks and going about its normal business. But then that larvae also needs to pupate, like I told you. So what it does is it um, puts a chemical into the spider and changes its behavior. So on the left, what you see is a normal spider web, nice, big, and beautifully fanned, um, ideal for catching prey. On the right is the changed web. Now it's smaller, it's sturdier, and you might say that the middle would support a, co a cocoon really well. So the spider builds this web. And then it goes and sits in the middle and just waits. And then the larvae says, yep, it's time, kills the spider, sucks it dry. I imagine it throws the carcass away dramatically. And then it builds a cocoon from the middle of the web and, and metamorphoses there and turns into an adult and flies away. If this isn't the most terrifying case of parasitism, I don't know what is. You are being slowly eaten, you're turned into a slave doing its bidding, and then you're not even thanked, you're just, you're killed. Terrifying. So what I want you to get from this is that um, this manipulation of hosts is incredibly widespread. It happens to lots and lots of organisms. It's evolved over 20 times independently, and a lot of the ways that this happened is still really, really unclear. But it's also not just in invertebrates. And we're going to talk about two that have some implications for humans. The first is the flu. So you might imagine you get the flu, you sneeze and you cough. That's some small behavioral changes, I guess, in response to having the flu. But a really cool study in 2010, I put it down there at the bottom in case you want to check it out, showed that after you give people a vaccine, so an attenuated virus, um, sort of runs the body through a mild, mild sickness, people are more socially active that 48 hours following infection than they are prior to the infection by like a week beforehand. Not only are you like slightly more 
um, sociable, you actually increase your contact with people by over two times. So the idea here is that 48 hours, you're really highly contagious. Why not get out, meet people, shake some hands, and spread the virus? So I bet you'll wonder the next time you feel like throwing a party, if or if not, you are getting the flu. Um, another one we're going to talk about is in cats. Now, I have a cat. Her name is Gizmo. She's in the lower corner there um, in the left. And this one is of particular concern because there have been quite a few um, negative impacts of this. It's a protozoan parasite, um, so very, very small, in humans. So typically, this parasite moves between cats and rats. In rats, it has this crazy behavioral change where it makes rats less afraid of cats. So those rats are then much more likely to be eaten by cats because they're not hiding or running away from them. But this parasite can also get into people. And when it gets into people, there's a couple major changes. Um, the first is that they notice a change in attraction to cat urine. Men become attracted to it. Now, I wasn't aware there was a level of attraction beforehand, but whatever that level is, it increases for men. Women, you're fine. You still don't like cat pee. That's fine. You're good. Um, Females tend to become more affectionate. Males think they're invincible to an extent, more so than usual. Um, and they actually have shown, this is the really scary one, to get all serious on you for a second, is that um, they show that there's decreased reaction times in people with toxoplasma, so they're much more likely to get into car accidents. So that's, that's a really big concern. They've also shown some link between toxoplasma and higher rates of schizophrenia. And they've been trying to link it to cancer, but they haven't really found anything there. Now, don't throw your cats out on the street. Um, you're probably fine. Uh, house cats, not really a problem. It's those cats that are out catching rats, et cetera. And you're actually way more at risk of getting toxoplasma if you um, don't wash your fruit, which I don't, so, ugh, or eat raw meat. So um, in the States, one in four people actually have toxoplasmosis, and they believe it's through eating raw, raw meat and through not washing their vegetables. Um, if you have a cat, wash your hands after you clean the litter box. No big deal. Takes like a second. That's a really good way to decrease your risk. Um, and then I'm going to leave you with one more. We're going to backtrack here just a second before I finish up. And I have, the only reason I'm touching on these is because I brought some live ones for you to look at if you want. Oh, yes. Okay. So on the left-hand side, we have the tobacco hornworm. These are throughout North America. They're in, like a huge pest. So here we have the different life stages. You see um, the larva is this beautiful blue color. The more they feed on plants, the more green they become. Um, you can see that chrysalis or pupa or whatever you want to call it there on the left-hand side and then the adult at the top. There is a tiny little micro wasp that parasitizes these guys. It lays lots of eggs inside of the hornworm, similar to the other parasitoid wasp that we saw. But it does one other really interesting thing, which is that in addition to laying its eggs, it also places a polydnovirus inside of the caterpillar. So you can imagine that if you're a caterpillar and you have these eggs laid inside you, hopefully your immune system's going to react in some way and try to get them out of there. The polydnovirus lowers the immune system of the caterpillar so that those larvae will survive, which is crazy. Um, this is what they look like when the larvae come out. I have one of these. You can come see. So the pupa are all there on the outside. They're just, they're just chilling. Um, they all came through the wall of the host, like in the other one. Um, and then it's about four or five days in the pupa before they turn into adults and fly away. But that's about it. If this really interests you, um, Parasite Rex is like my favorite book. <laughs> it's amazing. I recommend reading it. It reads like a fiction. And then there's some other really good ones. Um, but otherwise, I'm happy to take any of your questions now. Edmonton Nerd Nights are on a break for the summer, but they will be back in September. And in fact, they may even be back sooner than that. Stay tuned. Uh, to the Edmonton Fringe's website to see if there will be a special edition Nerd Night at the Fringe in August. Uh, but they will be back. Just check edmonton.nerdnight, that's N-E-R-D-N-I-T-E, dot com for all the news on the forthcoming Edmonton Nerd Nights. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out 
The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. And now, a dramatic reading with Scott C. Bourgeois. The Ropes at Disney's, the 1943 Disney Employees Handbook. This is a no-necktie, sweaters, and slacks organization. Business-like informality is an accepted Disney policy, which has done much to maintain a friendly relationship between company and employee. Company procedure, said just like that, has an ominous sound. And yet we all know that the observance of certain shoulds and should-nots is necessary in an organization as complex as ours. Rules and regulations are set in not to dictate, but rather to help you and the company arrive at a common ground of mutual trust and understanding. The Ropes at Disney's is published as a handbook of general information. Naturally, personal agreements with employees, union contracts, and other definite commitments will control. This booklet is intended merely to be in the nature of a pointer. It will tip you off as to what goes and what doesn't. If you unwittingly slip off the beam, it will give you a painless nudge in the right direction. So please, read it carefully. Absence. The word absenteeism has been officially drummed out of the Disney vocabulary. It sounds chronic, incurable, and has been considerably overworked. We all know that unnecessary absence is a monkey wrench in the production machinery. Consider that fact and the short check on payday, then change your mind about going fishing. Of course, there will be times when some of us are really sick. In that event, we are doing no one any good by coming to the studio, least of all ourselves. In all cases of absence due to illness, call the nurse, extension 444. If absence is due to some unavoidable situation, call personnel, extension 371, as soon as possible. Sick leave. When old man misery has caught up with you, if you are ill, have suffered injury, or find it necessary to visit a physician, you are eligible for sick leave benefits. Regulations covering these benefits are as follows. Women employees are entitled to 10 days sick leave each year, but not more than five consecutive days at a time. Male employees are entitled to five days sick leave each year, but not more than three consecutive days at one time. Whenever you are absent because of illness, be sure to check with the nurse within three days after your return to work. File the necessary form with her, and when it's been approved, sick leave pay will be included in your check on the following payday. According to a new government ruling, all sick pay is subject to income tax. Accidents. Accidents will occur in the best regulated families, a slightly moldy but still very sage remark which has been ascribed to Mr. Micawber. Let it serve as a reminder that they can and do happen here. All accidents, no matter how minor, should be reported to the nurse at once. Extension 444. Insurance. If you haven't already done so, it will certainly pay you to consider our insurance plan. Any regular employee can subscribe to it at a minimum cost. The policies are underwritten by the John Hancock Company and cover two kinds of insurance group insurance, and hospitalization and surgical insurance. For further details, call the Paymaster's office. If you decide to sign up, application forms may be obtained from personnel. Working hours. Our regular work week at present is 40 hours, Monday through Friday. Most departments work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a one-hour lunch period. Overtime, when required and approved, is usually worked on Tuesday and Thursday nights and Saturdays. Overtime pay is governed by government regulations, studio policy, and union contracts. Of course, this whole setup is subject to change by government order. Payday. Every other Thursday is the Day of the Eagle. Stay around your room on payday morning and you want to catch the paymaster in the wing. If you happen to miss him, you can pick up your check at his office during lunch hour. Tardiness. Turning off that alarm clock and going back to sleep can be an expensive habit. Before you knock off those extra winks, think of the numbers you are knocking off your paycheck. You might consider the fact that you aren't exactly helping production, either. Identification. When Uncle Sam joined us on the lot, he brought with him a new and necessary institution. 
We refer, of course, to the identification badge. You will note that your picture looks very much like someone else. This is entirely beside the point. The point is, and we aren't kidding, you can't get through the time office morning or night without your badge. If you've lost it or left it at home, you have to go to the police gate and get a temporary badge until yours has been replaced. Safety. If you hold yourself down to a walk in the halls or on the stairs, and if you put out your smoke before you fiddle with a loaded moviola, then you are observing common sense safety rules. Thanks. Bulletin boards. It's a good idea to check the bulletin boards in your unit and in the main corridor at least once a week. Notices posted are of importance and interest to most everyone. Should you wish to post a notice yourself, it will first be necessary to clear all copy through the personnel office. Employment. When your brother-in-law asks you to get him a job here, tell him that all applicants must follow this procedure. Artists write Hal Adelquist, stating briefly experience and training. An application will be forwarded to the artist, and if he qualifies, he will be granted an interview. Non-artists write the personnel department, and the same procedure will be followed. Personal mail. The mailroom will be everlastingly grateful if you will please leave all your personal mail addressed to your home. The traffic boys likewise. Let us do nothing to stay these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Personal phone calls. At the risk of interfering with the even tenor of your social life, we must ask that you limit personal phone calls to emergencies. You know, of course, that you will be charged for all outgoing personal calls. Discharge. Union contracts and studio policy dictate the rules governing discharge. In general, the following are reasons for immediate dismissal. Falsification of records or dishonesty. Gross inefficiency. Malicious abuse of company equipment or property. Insubordination. Immoral conduct or indecency. And any violation of the United States Espionage Act. Terminations. The company would like to know at least 72 hours in advance of any intended terminations. Paymaster needs time to make up your check. Personnel must make a replacement. Incidentally, it is the personnel office which should be first notified of your intended departure. If you've been with us for over six months and are leaving to join up, you are entitled to military severance pay. One week's pay, six months to one year continued service, two weeks pay for one year or over of continued service. Selective service. We maintain an office to advise and assist you on selective service matters. This office is vitally interested in your draft status. They keep abreast of all changes and new regulations and are ready, willing, and able to help you with your problems. The office, located in 3C7, should be notified of any and all correspondence you might receive from your draft board, extension 327. Holidays. The studio observes the following holidays. You will want to know, however, that you must be on the job the day before and the day after the holiday in order to be paid for it. This is in accordance with union contracts. We celebrate New Year's Day, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Vacations. Like a certain well-known nag, vacations ain't what they used to be. Still, you can raise more blisters in your victory garden than you can on the beach. Anyway, after one year's continuous service, you are entitled to time off with pay. Please plan your vacation so it won't interfere with production by checking with your department head before making definite arrangements. Remember, too, that we are engaged in war work, and vacations are subject to change at any time through government order or studio policy. Off the Lot Pass if you find it necessary to leave the lot for any reason during working hours, be sure to get a rain check in the form of an off-the-lot pass. Then, don't forget to punch out through the time office. If you are leaving on company business, your pass may be signed to your department head or unit manager. In all other cases, your pass must be signed by Hal Adelquist. Remember, you will be paid for time spent off the lot only if this period is covered by an off-the-lot pass. The Library We have a well-stocked library on the second floor of the animation building. The primary purpose of this library is for studio research and production work. It's there for your convenience, so use it. Studio Equipment Careless handling of studio equipment can affect our entire production program. Please remember that all studio equipment is valuable, most of it irreplaceable. For this reason, its use is very definitely restricted to company productive purposes only. Do not take any studio equipment off the lot unless you have the proper authorization. Do not attempt to use or handle any company mechanical equipment unless you are qualified and authorized to do so. Transportation. 
The great brotherhood of the wistful thumb has come into its own with the advent of carpools. If there are words to be said pro and con concerning the unqualified success of the plan, we must at least agree that these pools are doing their share in solving the transportation problem. If you're looking for a ride or if you want to carry riders, call extension 288. Check with this office, 3C8, on all matters pertaining to gasoline, tire rationing, and similar problems. Unions. Our employees are represented by 33 separate unions. Your job will probably fall under the jurisdiction of one of them. For further information, contact the Labor Relations Office, Extension 450, or the Personnel Department, Extension 371. Soliciting. If you have something to sell, please refrain from personally hawking your wares from room to room on company time. If yours is a worthy cause, we will guide your sales efforts through the proper channels. Contact the Personnel Office. Visitors. Aunt Mary and Uncle John are going back to Four Connors, Kansas in a very bitter frame of mind, and all because you weren't permitted to show them the studio. We know and we're very sorry. However, government restrictions say no, and they aren't fooling. Only persons having definite, authorized business on the lot are permitted beyond the commissary. Time distribution cards. The people in the production cost department have a pretty complicated job to do, and it doesn't include deciphering your own particular brand of Sanskrit. So please use a little care filling out your time distribution card and consider the printed instructions before making your entries. Then don't forget to sign it and drop it off at the time office on Friday night. Penthouse Club. For all particulars, memberships, and like that, check with Walt Pfeiffer. Men only. Sorry, gals restaurant. We have the best equipped and most modern commissary in the valley. Open to our personnel only at the following hours, 7 to 8 a.m., 11.30 to 1.30 at noon, and 5 to 6 p.m., Tuesday and Thursday nights only. Forbidden Fruit. You can't replace lost time, nor your wasted stationery and art materials. Neither can you improve on the air conditioning. It's these little don'ts that make the big difference in our production program. We'll see you around the lot. The end. Published by the Personnel Department. Copyright 1943 by Walt Disney Productions. All rights reserved. No rules. No censors. It's Adam Rosenhart. Unleashed. I was recently subjected to a super hyper-targeted marketing campaign that I wanted to share with you. It was I was being targeted by an organization promoting an event, and near as I can tell, they were looking to communicate directly to me in a public way in order to raise awareness around that event. But before I get into the details about the experience, let me explain the idea of hyper-targeted by way of explaining a term you might already be familiar with. Many of our listeners will have heard Scott and I talk about hyperlocal. It's it's supposed to be sort of a journalism and blogging term around covering information at a very specific local level. So whereas a newspaper might be local, it still covers a region greater than just its city. In Edmonton, our local papers cover the entire capital region and include provincial and national news sections. Hyperlocal then relates to a smaller, more precise community. So a hyperlocal blog might cover a neighborhood, a street, a house, not that I've ever seen anything quite like this, but it's all about geography. Now, targeting and marketing, public relations and advertising is all about audiences. So hyper-targeting is about seeking out individuals based on very precise attributes. But super hyper-targeted marketing? Well, that's when you're seeking out one person and banking on the idea that if you're able to get their attention, they might help your organization achieve its marketing goals. So I was the super hyper target of a group called Playground.is. You can look, uh, look them up online. And this was a f about a month or so ago. It all started when I walked into my favorite local cafe on a Monday morning. I stepped up to the till and noticed a photo on the wall. I noticed it because it was a photo of me. So I asked one of the baristas at Elm Cafe, uh, what the hell is that? She said, oh, these dudes came in yesterday and said they wanted to buy you a bunch of your favorite lattes. So these are my, my large almond milk lattes, in case you ever wanted to do the same thing. So I was like, okay, and, and did they say why they wanted to do this? No, they just said, your next five were covered, and they left this website URL, so playground.is that I told you about. So I thought, fine, I'll have a few free lattes. And it was an interesting enough tactic that it compelled me to check out their website. I also tweeted about the gift of the lattes and, and then went on my merry way without thinking much of, of it. 
Later on that day, a box arrived at my office, and it was filled to the brim with mini-eggs, a treat that I often crave and always love, regardless of the time of year. Apparently, the Playground.is team learned from my Twitter account and other social media that I was fond of the eggs. A second gift. What a delight. I went back to their website and noted that they were doing an event in Edmonton soon. I tweeted my thanks to them and then noted that I would be out of town during their event, which didn't really seem to matter to them. Then things got, shall we say, a little bit strange. Posters appeared in my neighborhood. Upon closer inspection, they were printouts of tweets I'd published and content that I'd placed on Tumblr. And they were sort of laid out between where I lived and Elm Cafe, near as I could tell. Now, I'm a pretty public person. I use Foursquare and I occasionally check into places on Facebook. I'm not really concerned about privacy because I'm not putting things out there that I'm uncomfortable people knowing. But the posters did weird me out a little bit. Now, in deference to the Playground.is crew, they had no way of knowing that. My online persona screams public, but in my head, this just wasn't a great marketing tactic. It didn't make me feel comfortable or special. It just made me feel weird. I didn't talk about this part of the campaign on any of my social channels. Engaging uh, in this kind of marketing can bring you huge payoffs. As the recipient of the messaging, it feels whimsical, it's special, and it's pretty interesting. But the risk is not having a crystal clear understanding of your audience's thresholds for different kinds of messages. You could inadvertently turn someone right off your whole campaign with a single wrong move. And that's what happened to the playground team and me. They did something that just took it too far, weirded me out, and I was completely disengaged. Now, I've deliberately not spoken to the playground team about this because I wanted to write about it first. And, and really, I didn't want to throw them under the bus because f from what I hear, their event in Edmonton was a huge success. I can't speak to their specific marketing goals. And I want to be very clear that I think what they do is very cool. They, they host these events with bands that invite members of the audience to participate and compose new music together in, a, in one session. And if I'd been in town, I probably would have participated. The point I'm trying to make here is that super hyper targeted marketing is, is definitely a strategy that marketers can use, but you must wield it with extreme caution. And of course, the other point I'm trying to make is that I'm out of free lattes, so go to Elm Cafe and buy me a few. And who knows, if you're not too creepy, maybe we can be friends. Do you have a business plan, but you're not sure where to go from there? Do you want to increase sales? Get noticed? Wow your audience? Make your mom proud? Well, we've got you covered. We're connected, we're creative, and we're innovative. We our strategy first. If you've got a great product or service and you want the whole world to take notice, call Focus Communications. Let's start a conversation. Go to focuscom.ca. We should take a moment. Yeah, we should. Uh, and thank some special people for the last time this season. Yeah, it's true. Wow. Man, time flies. You know we've done 19 episodes this season? Uh, yes, we have. 19 and, being uh, a nice round number. And for the record, assuming that we do a next season, which yeah. we both want to do, yeah. but stuff happens, mm -hmm. uh, we will undoubtedly hit our 100th episode. No question. We're very close. We are we are in the high 80s right now. Yeah. And this of a series that we didn't expect would go past eight. I think you said fewer than that, didn't you? Quite probably. You said three, at the, I believe, at the time. Uh, so really, stay tuned for our next season, because yeah. we will have something special for our centennial episode. But before we even start thinking about that, we need to thank the people who've helped make season four possible. That's right. And let's do that by starting with the lovely people at Focus Communications, which is run by Dean and Sue. The amazing humans. The amazing humans. They came on board just at the top of this season. Right. So this is now them having supported us for a full season. Yeah, and we, we cannot thank them enough. They get upgraded to veteran 
sponsor status. They are now... They're no longer rookies. No, it's true. They're, and, and you know, we'd be happy to have them back next season. As a, as sophomore <laughs> sponsor. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, their support this year has been amazing for Scott and I and the show. It's, you know, allowed us to... Uh, to have planning meetings and just stay organized and, and have all the right equipment that we need to make the show happen. So thank you so much to Dean, Sue, and the whole team over at Focus Communications. And you can find out more about them at focuscom.ca. And of course, they've been here not since the beginning, but very close nearly. Enough. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. And they are Guru Digital Arts College. Yes. And in spite of the fact that we always claim to be coming to you almost live from another place, more often than not, we are at Guru Digital Arts College. Yeah. And they've got a really fantastic campus. Uh, they used to be on 101st Street, and they recently, well, the beginning of this year, in fact, sorry, at the end of our last season, Owen announced, Owen Brierley, the, the executive director, the Dumbledore of digital of, media. Yes announced that Guru was moving to the Mercer building. So for the last uh, year, they've allowed us to use their classrooms at Guru to As record the Unknown space, Studios. Yes. Yeah. And it's been wonderful. It has. And we uh, appreciate their support and hopefully their continued support as yes. we move into the next season. And of course, if you are looking to start a new career in the digital arts, you should definitely check out gurudigitalarts.com. No question. So thank you to our sponsors, and we hope... To have three dozen of them next year. And also three dozen listeners next year. Yeah. That would be That'd nice. be amazing. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome uh, a special guest for this, our season finale of The Indeed. Unknown Studio. We wanted to do something a little more special. We did. You kind of uh, held our feet to the fire uh, last episode. I did promise that we'd do something incredible. So, And uh, so we found an incredible guest. Uh, Edmonton's Mayor, Stephen Mandel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for those very kind words. <laughs> well, we're very glad that you were able to join us today. Um, just wanted to talk to you about, you know, your, your career. You announced that you wouldn't be seeking a, a third term, fourth term, my apologies. I should know better than this. Um, and I just wanted to, uh, you know, talk about the whole thing, your entire council career, even when you were Counseling? first elected councillor, yeah. but, but even before that, because you, you came to Edmonton in the 70s. 1972, December. And what was it that brought you to the city? Well, I was, uh, my father had business out here, and I was uh, working on my Ph.D. in uh, Dalhousie, and, uh, and I fell in love and wanted to get married, and so I needed a job, and so I came out here and went to work and got married, and the rest is history. The rest is history, yes. Next 40 years is, uh, yeah, we'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary on uh, October 19th. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, 40 good years. Well, she's, I've had 40 good years. She's had six. <laughs> <laughs> so what was Edmonton like back in the 70s and 80s? Was it... Uh, was it the boom town that everyone always talks about? You know something, to be very frank with you, I put my nose to the grindstone and worked all the time. You know, worked seven days a week and 12, 14 hours a day. So, you know, I, I didn't get the ambiance of the city. You know, um, I was young and trying to make a living for my family. And um, so, I mean, Edmonton was, was um, you know, things to do. Uh, but I, I really couldn't give you a, a great historical analysis of what, was, what it was like because um, I don't remember it because all I did was work. Sure, fair before enough. Before you were paying attention. And then you... That's true, too. Yeah, before I was, you know, really obligated to pay attention, which is, you know, which when I got, you know, back in the mid-90s. And what is it that sort of got your attention and made you want to want to run for city council? Well, um, you know, I had retired. I sold a bunch of businesses and retired. And, and I felt that, uh, you know, the old saying is the guy from business is going to show everybody how to manage a business. So, I mean, it was part of that. And... Uh, you know, interest in, in municipal issues, and, uh, um, and I thought it would be a, an interesting challenge. And nothing, what? nothing. I had no, I didn't have any burning issues or a uh, uh, something was driving me to, to run, other than just I think it'd be interesting. Great, but but I assume the mayor running for mayor was different. Oh, that was different. Yeah, and that was different. and what was it that compelled you at the time to run for mayor? Well, I've been on council for three years, and during those three years, I felt that we had not accomplished very much, and that. Uh, um, you know, as, as much I enjoyed it, um, I didn't see that the city was moving in any direction um, to, to kind of rebuild what we'd allowed to fall apart for the previous 20 or 25 years. And so uh, at the end of the day, I thought, well, I'm either going to run for council, which I didn't want to do, or I need to, need to run for mayor and try to make the changes that I think are necessary to, to build the city to attract and retain uh, the younger generation who'd been leaving Edmonton too frequently. So... At the end of the day, I made a decision to run. 
Was it uh, a pretty easy decision for you and for your wife, Lynn? My wife's been fantastic. And Lynn is um, absolutely spectacular. So, you know, she, she was, whatever I wanted to do, she was always behind it. So it wasn't a matter of having to convince her. I had to tell her, that's all, uh, what I wanted to do. But it was really, um, um, it was a difficult decision because not knowing what it would be like to be mayor um, and not knowing what a campaign would be like to run for the mayor's, mayor's chair, um, it was a bit scary and ominous, but um, I was lucky. I put together an incredible team. Um, you know, I had an um, incredibly bright uh, young individual named Patricia Mazutka, who was my uh, campaign chair. And uh, we brought together a group of really neat people, and it was a lot of fun. It was um, a pretty special campaign. Yeah, I can imagine. And those, they're a tremendous amount of work. You would know you've done uh, you know, four of them in total, mm -hmm. and three as the mayor. Um, what are some of the memories you have of some of the um, the issues that you faced when you were running, uh, even as an incumbent, that well, made were, it difficult? Sure. Um, well, uh, the first election it was wasn't as an incumbent, so right. it was really about creating a vision for the city and um, getting away from what I mean. I always refer to as the good enough attitude that we were prevailed in the city of Edmonton for so long, and that one of the frustrating things was that we. We had just developed Churchill Square, and that became a political issue. I'm saying, oh, why would that become a political issue? It's a little square of, of concrete. We should have done a better job on it, to be honest with you. But the, the, the backlash from the good enough people made us do less. That, that was one. But um, another, another one was um, when um, in, the second, in, the, in the third election with the airport issue was, was a big issue, and uh, um, that, that became a, um, a major focal point for the whole campaign, it became very, very um, confrontational and uh, aggressive and, you know, but citizens have been spoke and they wanted to see us move ahead with the city and so uh, that was, uh, that issue was dealt with. Um, part of the second, cam third campaign was also the arena but not very much. Yeah. Um, for the most part in the campaigns it's, you know, you, you talk about where you want to go and what you want to do and it's, you know, it's really, um, the body of work that you've done rather than any one particular issue, I find that nobody says that, uh, no, somebody not, might not like you and vote for you because of an issue, but for most of the people, they tend to look at what you've accomplished during that period of time. Was it good? Was it bad? And, uh, um, and based upon that, they'll support you or not. Yeah. You mentioned the arena, and I think when, when that was all finished up, um, you were noticeably lighter. Was was that? I mean, I'm I'm being totally honest. Sure. You know, um, you seemed you seemed happier. You seemed relaxed from what I saw in the media. Was that the thing? Uh, once that was done, that that sort of helped you to make your decision to not run for mayor again. No, I wasn't running regardless. Is that right? And I told all the parties involved that I was going to make my announcement within a short period of time thereof. And if we didn't finalize it, they'd have to do it with someone else because I was time to move on. So. Um, no, um, I didn't think I was that uh, uncomfortable before it, but I mean, maybe I was and didn't notice it. Um, so, um, you know, the arena was a, a big issue, but it was was played out way more than it should have been. There were mm -hmm. far more important issues of homelessness and housing and, and building bridges and roads and things like that that, uh, um, that I think impact neighbor, neighborhoods and people much more. But uh, it, the, the, the arena got a life, in a, a life unto its own. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I, that, that was for many, many reasons. And... Um, some we, we didn't predict, some we did predict, but um, it, it became far more uh, acrimonial, acrimonious than, than it should have been. Well, do you, sorry, go ahead. Do you feel, uh, are you pleased that you got to be the person who uh, was there when the arena deal got finalized? No, nah, it doesn't matter to me. Fair enough. You know, it's done now. If someone else had done it, they'd have done it. You know, I don't, you know, I don't think you can, you know, you don't, you don't stay or go because of a particular I wouldn't say I, I did stay an awful lot this last time because of issues that were there, you know, primarily the, the airport, which I thought was incredibly important. Um, but um, uh, the arena, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Fair enough. So you said the arena wasn't, uh, it may have been a small piece of what you thought about when you decided to step or to mm -hmm. not run again. How difficult was that decision? Because you, you said you were going to talk about it at the State of the City address. Mm -hmm. and, and much to everyone's shock, I was in the room and I remember the gasps. Um, the gasps. He said, no, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. That was you great. know, I, I think that there was issues that, in my personal opinion, needed to be aired at the time. And uh, 
um, two of them in particular I raised, one about the universities and uh, post-secondary institutions and, and the challenge they're, they're facing currently and uh, the inequities in the region. If you announce that you're not running again at that point in time, um, I think they, they become a bit diminished in, in the people's eyes and I think they're very, very important. So we made a decision that um, they, were be the, they would be the focal point of the speech, not me. That's great. And so um, now that you have announced, what, what sort of work are you doing for the next few months to tie everything off? Well, we've got a couple, three projects that I'm quite passionate about. One is Women's Council mm -hmm. uh, that we're very excited about, and hopefully that'll come through Council as soon as possible. We're done, we hope, by the end of August. Um, that's one. Two is uh, we've had a tremendous amount of success with our um, agencies on what we call back of house which is looking at ways they can cooperate to be more efficient in dealing with uh, the challenge. They have an operational side of, of their non-government organizations, and so they've been doing a great job, and uh, we hope to have a, a plan in place which allows them to uh, begin to work together more effectively and to uh, use their money in a, more, in a wiser way. Mm -hmm. And the third project is, is a housing project for, uh, for young people who are um, uh, leaving uh, provincial care and or who want to get off the street. This isn't a homeless project. It's a project, uh, if you, know anything, if you think about, know anything about the women building futures, it's a, a project like that, uh, giving a younger generation individual the chance to learn a skill, learn a trade, um, to, to change their lives, to become more, a more contributing, contributing individual to society. So those are three things that we're doing, plus the ongoing work of the city. You know, we have constant work of people coming forward to do things. And yeah, that's great. So looking back, uh, what, were, what were some of your... Um, least favorite parts of the job? What were some of the challenges that, that you experienced that didn't make the job that enjoyable? You know, there's not many, to be honest with you. It's a great job. Um, you know, I think one of the great challenges the mayor has, is that, which is the reality of the job, is that you have no power whatsoever. So when you're dealing with the province, the federal government, or your council colleagues, you, you really have the only power you have is the power of, of your individual persuasiveness and or your popularity at that point in time. So that makes it very difficult to try to build consensus um, and, and to work and try to get the city moving forward. And so that's, um, you know, and then you're always trying to find ways to work with the province and the feds. And if you do something they don't like, then there's, you know, a period of time, there's a cooling off period, you know, and yeah. so that creates its challenge as well, too. So um, that, that's the most difficult part of the job. I, I can imagine trying to draw all those parties together. Um, I have enough trouble getting my girlfriend to agree to go somewhere and eat something. Um, do you conversely have a favorite part of the job, the thing that made you just look forward to going into work every day? I think helping people uh, was the most, most enjoyable part, seeing that we could change people's lives and uh, create um, a better environment for people, whether it was you know, the Homeless Commission, whether it was REACH, or any number of things, the Africa Center, um, working with our Aboriginal community, on and on and on. Um, those are the things that were most enjoyable, and we had a chance to do that. It was exciting to, to see how we could impact people. iHuman, the, the Ukrainian Museum, Aboriginal Recreation Center, on and on and on and on. You know, we've got a great list of things that um, I'm very proud of that council was able to do, and so that, that, those are the most proud things. What about perks? I mean, you're the mayor. <laughs> you know, there's there's got to be there's got to be something to this job. Like yeah. I don't know. There's only one perk I get, and that is my parking pass. Oh no, that's it. That's it. There's only perk you get. Um, I don't appoint anybody to boards. I don't. Uh, I don't get. Any, I get some. Um, sometimes I'll go to meetings. I get extra money, but I don't keep it. I give it to charity. I don't believe I should accept any money beyond my salary. Mm -hmm. So I give that to charity. So there's no. That's the only perk I get is my parking pass, and I'll desperately meet that. I miss that when I <laughs> when I leave on on October 28th. Um, You'll have to remember that you have to plug a meter, kind of thing. Oh well, yeah, right? I have to remember to plug meters and and uh, and the other one, I guess you know, um, is you you get a bit spoiled and that uh, you have your staff who are phenomenal, do many things for yourself that you would normally have to do. You know, I need to do something. I call up one of myself. Could you do that for me? And so I, I think that part of it is is also a big perk. Yeah. You know, but um, other than that, there's there's not a lot of not a lot of bonuses in the mayor's job. Not even like diplomatic immunity or something? No, I have diplomatic <laughs> immunity. Yeah, sure. No, you don't. No, there's no diplomatic immunity. Fair enough. Yeah. So um, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but um, but what's next for you uh, personally and, and professionally? Well, I'm going to take some time off and, and um, right after the, um, the election. A friend of ours is having a birthday party and we're going to go away for a couple of weeks on a cruise. And then um, come back for Christmas with my grandson, which I'm very excited about. 
And then um, January, February, March, we're going to, my wife and I have yet to decide. We'd like to maybe go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks or maybe go to England for a couple of months. I don't know. We'll see. That'd be great. See what, see what unfolds. You don't know what the future holds, and there's, you know, different options out there. But we'll see what, what transpires. And you also have a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, you're not tied down to... Um, doing things at, uh, on an ongoing basis, and you don't have to be at work seven days a week. That'll take some adjusting to it, too, you know? I mean, not, not going to work every day is it will be... Uh, I mean, I still have businesses and I'll have to go to work, but I can go at noon, nobody cares. You know? <laughs> so um, you, you are entering... You, you failed at retirement the first time around, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so this time around, you're, you're committed to being retired, or do you think you might no, slip I'm not gonna, into... No, no, I'm not going to be retired. I, you know, no, I'll do something else. Cool. Whatever that'll be, I don't know, but it won't be. I'm not going to drift off to uh, Phoenix and spend the winter golfing. It doesn't interest me at all. Fair enough. What about the forthcoming election? Are you involved in it at all? And if yes or no, what are you looking forward to about it? Well, I'm not going to be involved in the mayorality race. Um, there's good candidates running, and that's up to the people to decide. You know, um, I'm going to help a friend of mine who's running, and um, um, I think he'd be a great candidate, but I'm not going to speak about that on your show. Fair enough. And are you looking forward to just sitting back and being able to observe rather than have to fight through the election this oh, time Oh, God, around? yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, elections are tough. I mean, uh, I met with a young fella today who, a young fella, a fella today who was thinking about running, and he said he would love to be on council. But elections are tough. Elections are tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go in front of the people, you're, you know, uh, if it's controversial, you can be jeered at and yelled at and sworn at. Um, you know, it's, it's um, very difficult. And then, you know, you're knocking on doors and hearing people, you know, what did you do that for? And, you know, you get a fair amount of criticism. You see, what did I do that was right? And um, so um, they're tough. Elections are tough. And um, you have to have thick skin and uh, have to have an incredible team around you to, to get through it and to win. And uh, um, so I'm actually quite excited about not having to go through that. And, and really, uh, it's interesting, elections for... The mayor are substantially different than for a councillor. Yeah, I can I imagine. Mean, dramatically different. Just like, you know, I would imagine, I would imagine for leaders of the, of the federal and provincial level, it's dramatically different than an MLA or an MP. So, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll watch at a distance, um, but try to keep my nose out of the way as much as possible. I imagine you'll have uh, organizations like the CBC and Global asking you to come on their election coverage show and, and offer up commentary. Yes, and I said no. Oh, really? Okay, great. <laughs> so you are going to be at home relaxing, uh, watching the election uh, just for yourself. It'll be, it'll, it sounds like it'll be really lovely for you. Yeah, well, I'll be watching it with, uh, I'll probably get a few friends of mine, and yeah. I'll probably go to uh, the individual that I'm going to help, go to, go to that individual's campaign headquarters and hope that, that, that he wins. Um, so, yeah, I'm, we'll do something, but I don't want to, when that election is done, it really is important that me as mayor fades out and let the new mayor take the lead, take that uh, uh, chair and, and, and do what they need to do and not be uh, having to worry about me being in the background or doing anything. I'll be right out of the way. Just yeah. kind of sneak out the back door. <laughs> well, I'll try to go out the front door but and, and not sneak, but just to leave. Yeah, fair no, yeah, It's not fair to whoever that is um, to... Shoot, sorry. That's, that's okay. quite all right. That's, that's all right. Can I just... Yes. I have to call you back, okay, Kathy? Bye. <laughs> if I got a nickel for every time someone got called on our show, yeah, I would that. have several nickels. Yeah, we'd be rich. My phone does not ring that much because very, very few people have my phone number. They so. probably call your chief of staff directly. Well, they call her or someone else in the office, not, not me. <laughs> so one last question before, uh, before we let you go. Uh-huh. Um, there's been some speculation that you... I don't know if it's come from anywhere near your office, but some people are speculating that you may consider a run for provincial politics. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It wasn't my office. It wasn't me. So we'll just leave that alone. Fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule, Mr. Mayor. It was a pleasure to have you on for probably the last time, certainly as mayor of this city. An, a, an exit interview, if you will. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's sad, you know. Just, <laughs> uh, see, that, that goes to the heart of it when you're, when you're no longer. You're no longer. It's, uh, you know, you won't even invite me back as a citizen. See, you oh, know, I, that's I'm not saying that. Saying that. <laughs> I'm kidding with you. As We've spoken as, to less interesting people. As long as you make something Edmonton, there's always potential that you'll be on that's this right. show. That's, that's a right. That's a great, great project, Make Something Edmonton. They're a great group of younger generationals. Great. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 89. Our guest, Mayor Stephen Mandel. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. one of those things where uh, I left with what I thought was plenty of time to make it here and then I hit like every red light and I was trapped behind slow moving traffic yeah. and there was construction and I'm just like seriously? I believe that the city is replete with slow moving traffic today because trying to get here for me normally what is a you know, 10-15 minute drive was more like a 20 minute enraging ordeal. I was concerned I wasn't going to find parking uh, just outside. Did you did you park in affordable storage? Or? Yeah. Uh, but I mean I was approaching and Two vehicles went in ahead of me, and the lot was full. And I was just like, no. So I followed them intentively, and there was a spot right there. And I was like, yes. get that spot. See, you know, that that would be my, my only criticism of, well, okay, I've got a couple of criticisms of 104th Street. Uh, the first is parking. There's not a lot of it. But I, I get that they're trying to encourage, you know. Um, Second is that awful farmer's market. Just yeah. tying up traffic. <laughs> yeah, that thing's the worst. No, but actually, the truly the second is that next to this building, uh, next to Guru, there's another building uh, where the roost used to be. And apparently that's being turned into a holding facility for illegal aliens that are about to, that are about to get the boot from the city. Wow, that is... Or from the country. That is a significant change. It seems like the wrong thing to put in this neighborhood. Uh, also the wrong thing to replace the roost with. <laughs> exactly. The roost. The most accepting place you could be. A jail for illegal immigrants. Yep. The least accepting place you could be. But unfortunately, it also ties up a big chunk of parking there, too. It's true. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, very much so.